Good morning, Oregon. This is Teresa Mahoney, video editor at The Oregonian and Oregon Live. I'm here to share the next episode of The Unidentifieds, a new six-part limited series podcast. In it, we investigate four cold cases and how online genealogy and forensic anthropology helped solve them. Families get closure, and the people who've existed for decades in boxes on evidence room shelves, if nothing else, get their identities back. We'll be back every week with a new episode on this feed, or you can search The Unidentifieds wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find new episodes and more coverage at OregonLive.com slash The Unidentifieds. Without further ado, here's the next episode. It was Tuesday morning in early February 2020, just a few weeks before Oregon would have its first confirmed case of COVID-19. A woman answered the door of her home in Hillsborough, a Portland suburb known as the Silicon Forest because of its massive tech factories, where semiconductor companies produce millions of microchips every year. She was met by three people from the Clackamas County Sheriff's Office. It was not a scheduled visit. The woman invited the three strangers into her home, where the four of them sat in her living room. She was about to learn the answer to a question that had followed her for most of her life. What had happened to her long-lost sibling? You're finding unknown human remains that nobody's missing. It initially wasn't obvious that there was a missing daughter. They are on perhaps the fringe of society, and so no one's looking for them. I'm Regan Mertz. And I'm Dave Killen. This is The Unidentifieds, a podcast from The Oregonian and Oregon Live. On Saturday, August 2nd, 1986, two U.S. Forest Service employees were on a logging road in the dense woods near Government Camp. Government Camp is a small mountain town and a critical outpost for skiers and snowboarders just off Highway 26 at about 4,000 feet up the southern slope of Mount Hood. At 11,240 feet, Mount Hood is the highest point in Oregon. Cat Caruso, with the Pacific Northwest Region U.S. Forest Service Public Affairs Office, describes this Goliath Mountain. When you're in Portland and you're looking out at the skyline, um, there's a there's a large mountain that kind of dominates your view of the landscapes, and that's Mount Hood. As you drive towards it, um, you know, in the wintertime, it's it's where pretty much everybody in Portland goes to go skiing. Um, and for winter recreation, it doesn't snow, snow a whole lot um, down closer to sea level. But if you get up into the mountains, you can visit it is what I like to like to tell people. And in the summertime, it also has just really extensive, um, you know, trail networks and opportunities for camping and dispersed camping. It draws a lot of visitors, but it's also, you know, this very open space where you can, you know, also, you know, find opportunities to feel just kind of alone and one with nature. The Forest Service workers were out collecting timber data when they stumbled across a grizzly discovery a human skull, bone fragments, and a single tooth. The Forest Service doesn't deal with investigations unless it's a case of someone stealing trees from the logging land, so the duo alerted the Clackamas County Sheriff's Office immediately. Neither of them had encountered human remains on National Forest land before. That's because it's a lot of land, much of it rugged and remote. It takes the right person walking in the right place at the right time of year to find human remains, since the area is sometimes covered in snow. If you're organizing a search effort and you're covering an area the size of, say, even a portion of the Mount Hood National Forest, 
it's it's not just a needle in a haystack. It's a needle in a field of haystacks. And that field of haystacks can be can be riddled with all sorts of geographical hazards, um, areas that are just difficult for a person to access safely. Um, they're diff- difficult to surveil from the air um, because of the tree cover. There, there's canyons, there's boulders, there's, um, you know, valleys. It's, it's just really hard to describe how wild some of the spaces in between can be um, and how easy it can be for somebody to get lost in those and how difficult it could be for them to find their way out or for somebody to find them their way to them. It doesn't surprise me at all that somebody could get lost or go missing and it could take years to find them if we ever find them at all. A handwritten report states what Clackamas County officers found upon further investigation. A skull free of insects and tissue laying upside down in pine needles. There was a dark stain on top of the skull where it had rested on the ground. Investigators took photos of the scene and the remains were then transported and inventoried at the Clackamas County Sheriff's Office. Eleven days later, an Oregon State Police forensic examiner determined that the skull most likely belonged to a 20-something woman or a small man. The coroner estimated that the skull had been in the woods for about a decade, which meant the person had died around 1976. Investigators released those details to the public, and they got dozens of leads through a tip line. Numerous people believe they had known the person the remains belonged to. A missing teenager, a neighbor, a cousin from down the line. I received the case files through a public records request and found hundreds of pages of reports, timelines, photos of the skull, and sketches. Among these pages were the dozens of conversations investigators had with those tip line callers. But it was all to no avail. The case went cold. It was just another body found in Oregon's woods. Unclaimed. Unidentified. Hello. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing? It's very wet. It's very stormy here today. For this episode of the podcast, I'm up on Mount Hood, the 11,000-foot volcano that looms about 50 miles east of Portland. I have arrived at what my GPS is telling me is approximately the location, and I'm pulling over. Okay, here we are. He's on a gravel road at a spot that's only about a mile and a half south of government camp as the crow flies. But to get there is a lot more complicated, requiring a meandering seven-mile drive from Highway 26 through the Trillium Lake Recreation Area and out into the forest on Still Creek Road, the unpaved and remote pathway he's just parked alongside. Here I am on a deserted gravel road in the pouring rain in the middle of the Mount Hood National Forest. Are you on like a path or are you just walking into the forest? I just sort of walked into the forest here. Um, So right now I'm about, I would say, 50 feet off of the logging road or fire road that I was on. Can you just describe to me what you're seeing right now? Like, just how dense is it? It's dense, but you can see the sky. Like, if I look up, I see raindrops falling and and, and cloudy sky above them. As you look at the ground, it's the ground is kind of a reddish-brown color because of all the pine needles. I would say I can see about 50 yards in any one direction before it just becomes sort of a massive forest and I can't really 
you know, see any detail beyond that. In 2008, nearly 30 years after the remains were found, the bones were re-inventoried by Dr. Nikki Vance. Nikki, who we've spoken to in past episodes, is the forensic anthropologist at Oregon's Medical Examiner's Office. She's the one who set out to document and re-examine all of the dozens of remains in her possession since she started her job there in 2004. The remains from Mount Hood were being re-examined at an exciting time when forensic labs and online databases were suddenly merged. Investigators put the skull's DNA profile into CODIS, the Combined DNA Index System, and entered the case into NamUs, the National Missing and Unidentified Person System. NamUs is another database that was created in 2005 by the National Institute of Justice to help resolve missing and unidentified person investigations. In addition to those new avenues for DNA matching, investigators also took a more old-school approach to the case. Clackamas County Sheriff's Office forensic artist Joyce Nagy made a clay facial reconstruction of the skull. You might remember Joyce from the first episode of this podcast. She started off as a forensic video analyst, but now uses her artistic talent to create reconstructions of what someone might have looked like based on their skeletal remains. I ended up um, putting a face on her. Building the clay model of this particular skull was challenging because the lower half of it was missing, but Joyce made do with what she had. Some of it is a science... Other pieces are more like guesswork or art. So I ended up making a mandible, which is, there still are mathematical processes that you go through with the existing cranium um, measurements to base what the size of the mandible will be. And um, so it it turned out okay. Um, and then I ended up putting her in pigtails just because she may have been camping or whatever. Um, but that was decided on with the detective and myself. Um, but she went around, um, that image went around quite a few places. Her reconstruction consists of the shoulders, neck, and head. The clay model is wearing a forest green shirt. Her auburn hair is styled in pigtails that stop at her shoulders. The pigtails are tied with white scrunchies and short bangs fall on her forehead. Just like decades ago, when the two Forest Service guys first stumbled across the remains, Photos of the clay reconstruction caused an uptick in tips when they were released, but none of them held up. The trail ran cold again. That's the biggest issue about trying to get these folks identified is, you know, their family it could be in another country. They could be, you know, of course, they're probably in a different state. They might be on the Pacific Northwest if we find them here in Oregon. But you're, you're finding unknown human remains that nobody's missing. And to me, that's the saddest thing in the world. Um, regardless if their family just gave up searching or their family doesn't know to search. Um, but if, you know, um, and, and it depends on the family dynamics, but to be just lost and unknown is, you know, I'm, I'm the last resort for these folks. What are the thoughts going on in your head right now? What is your first impression of this area? It is very isolated. I'm very much on my own right now. Other than that road, there's nothing anywhere near here uh, that has any sign of other humans. It's pretty and, and pleasant, but also kind of scary. You know, a colleague of mine likes to say, if you're, if you're in journalism long enough, you never look at the woods the same way again. And I have found that to be very true. So there's a, 
you know, it's hard not to see a sinister side to it as well and to think about, you know, how, yeah, how vulnerable someone is in a place like this. How deep are you into the woods now? Can you see your car still? I can. It's probably about 100 feet away. I will wander a little further. How would it be if, like where you are right now, if someone was hurt and abandoned out here, what could they do for themselves, if anything? If you were out here and needed help in some way and you were alone, that would be a very bad situation, even now, I would say. With the you know exception of being able, if you had a cell phone, to call for help and to pinpoint your location. Um, at any time before that technology existed, I think you'd be in real, real dire straits. Especially if you're not prepared for that elements with clothing and equipment and things like that. Yeah, I mean, that's something that happens even now. Let's say worst case scenario here, my phone dies, my car dies, I trip over a log and break a leg. You know, nighttime would be pretty tough. I'd be soaking wet. Um, I'm sure it's gonna get down into the 30s tonight. I mean, it's possible I wouldn't survive the night, even now. It's just crazy to think about that over the last 40 years, like, you know, people would be in the same boat, even with advancements in modern medicine and, you know, cars and cell phones. Yeah, there's a lot that's different, but in the end, you know, there's a reason the woods are, you know, at times thought of as kind of a dark and foreboding place. You are in an environment where there's not a lot to help you. It doesn't take much going wrong for the situation to really take a turn, even now. Fourteen years after the bones were re-examined by Dr. Nikki Vance, and 33 years after they were found in the forest, the state got a big break. In January of 2019, Nikki and the medical examiner's office were awarded a National Institute of Justice grant. They chose these remains to be investigated using the grant funds. They sent the skull to the University of North Texas, where DNA was extracted from it. Parabon Nano Labs received the DNA and subjected it to in-depth genetic genealogy and DNA phenotyping. By January 22, 2020, Parabon could definitively say a lot about the skull. It belonged to a female of Northern European descent with fair skin, hazel or brown eyes, and brown hair. They could even say she had a sprinkling of freckles. They were also able to identify some potential relatives of the young woman, a pair of sisters. This was a major breakthrough, and Parabon C.C. Moore was thrilled. You know, it took a lot of work, a lot of tree building, but I was able to find the commonalities. I was able to find the overlaps and the intersections, and it ended up pointing right toward her, her immediate family. So it was very clear that this unknown woman or unknown girl was the daughter of this particular couple and they had several daughters but only one of them was missing obviously it initially wasn't obvious that there was a missing daughter she wasn't mentioned in either of her parents obituaries but one of her sisters had created a public family tree on ancestry.com the family tree included a third sister who was marked as deceased but the date of her death was not entered so that was a really good clue and it was the first time i actually knew what the sister's name was and what her date of birth was that gave me the information that i needed to be able to pass that on to dr vance and her team and then for them to be able to confirm her existence In February of 2020, Joyce Nagy and Clackamas County Sheriff's Office detectives Mary Nunn and Jed Wilson visited the Hillsboro, Oregon home of the woman who had created the family tree. 
I tried reaching out to her myself and the other sister as well, but could not get a hold of either of them. Here's what we now know about their missing sibling from what the detectives learned that day. Her name was Wanda Ann Herr. She was born to Daisy Ryan and Elton Herr on May 1st, 1957. The 1950s were sandwiched by World War II and the Cold War, and each year of that decade, four million babies were born. It was the baby boomer era. It was Wilma who had created the online family tree that C.C. Moore found, and who the detectives spoke to that day in Hillsborough. The family didn't spend a lot of time in one room or under one roof. The siblings lived in different places growing up, with three of the four siblings living in the family home in Gaston, Oregon. The Her House stood on the aptly named Her Road near Hag Lake, but the house burned down about 15 years ago. Their parents divorced when Wanda was four, so their grandmother took care of the kids. Wanda repeatedly ran away, and she would end up staying in girls' group homes. Wilma says it was because their father molested Wanda. She told detectives that she caught the two of them in their barn one time, but she didn't know what age Wanda was when it happened, and she never asked her dad about it because she wouldn't dare. Their father never admitted to it either. The last time Wilma saw Wanda was June or July 1976. Wanda had come home for a family gathering. She had a boyfriend with her, but Wilma said she didn't remember much about him. Wilma said that shortly after Wanda disappeared, their father hired a private investigator, but nothing came of it. A missing persons report was never filed. The detectives asked Wilma if she thought someone had harmed Wanda, and she said that their dad alluded to the boyfriend. There's so much Wilma didn't know about her sister. The only job Wilma knew Wanda ever had was on the farm, like the rest of the her family, but Wilma didn't know if she worked anywhere else. Wilma didn't know if Wanda went to church, and she didn't know who Wanda was associated with. She didn't know if Wanda was afraid of anything or anyone. She did know that Wanda wasn't into sports, but she liked art and singing. Wilma described Wanda as having brown hair and fair skin, but she didn't know her eye color. While writing this podcast, I thought of my three siblings, similar to the her children. A quartet against the world. Were you thinking the same thing I was? How could a sister not know her sister's eye color when they are one year apart? How could your sibling not know if you have blue-green, brown, or hazel eyes? I wondered as much out loud to Nikki Vance. I have a lot of thoughts on why people persist in being unidentified. And one of the more consistent thoughts that I have on that is our marginalized communities. We see quite often decedents coming into our facility that don't have any ID on them. They are found um, in the woods, in tents, emaciated, undernourished. And we can take a DNA sample from that person and upload it into the DNA database. And it may hit on something, it may not. Because those people may not be known to be missing to their family. It's not a crime to not contact your family for eight years. And so people lose touch. And so those connections are lost with families. I think there are, you know, personality types where people just want to wander and they want to be alone and they want to be in nature. And we see our decedents come into our facility like that. They've, they've camped out or they've died of exposure and they're in a really remote location. Nobody has found them for months and months and months. But it isn't just the hikers or wanderers who go missing. Obviously, there are some criminal aspects to some of these cases where they are homicides. We also see people 
who meet their demise via suicide, who go into the woods and really want one last sunset on top of the mountain that they climbed as a, as a child. And maybe they're found there. Uh, but to me, the theme keeps coming back around with, with why these people aren't identified within the first week. And to me, it seems like they're marginalized and they are on perhaps the fringe of society. And so no one's looking for them. No one has reported them missing. And no one's taken the steps as family members to reach out to law enforcement and and really talk about um, the disappearance of their loved ones. Since you're there physically and, you know, I'm sitting in an audio booth in the middle of Missouri, you know, what are just your thoughts that you're thinking right now? Just being in the area where she last was and then where we are today, you know, us picking up the story, you driving out there. Just what are you thinking? Yeah, it, uh, I think, you know, one thing it makes you think about is you kind of, you know, cast yourself back in time and think like this area was witness to something bad. Uh, even if we're just talking about this one instance, whatever resulted in Wanda being, this being where, you know, the last place she ever was, it was almost certainly terrifying for her. And, you know, that is, uh, this is overly simplistic, but it's just a sad thing to think about. In the end, all that anyone has is the memories that other people have of them, right? I think that some part of Wanda will always be around because I mean like you said you're in the area right now and you're thinking about her even though I'm in Missouri if I am hiking through the woods or something like I think about these people I think about Wanda and hopefully yeah. you know what this podcast is doing will give her part of a life a small fraction of a life that she deserved yeah I think I mean I think that's a, a good way of putting it and a, and a noble goal Forensic artist Joyce Nagy had accompanied the detectives to Wilma Hur's house in Hillsborough. She showed Wilma her clay reconstruction and drawing of Wanda. One of the detectives asked Wilma if the recreations resembled her sister, and she said she didn't know. Wanda had left the family when she was a freshman or sophomore in high school, and at this point she was a nomad, moving from home to home. After the interview, Wilma gave the detectives her phone number and provided a DNA sample. Detectives submitted it to compare with DNA taken from Wanda's skull to confirm that they are sisters and that they were Wanda's remains. Before they left, the detectives asked Wilma if she had any pictures of Wanda. She said she only has two, one from when Wanda was seven and another from when she was 12. The first photo was taken in 1964 when Wanda was in the first grade. She's wearing a white collared shirt with puffy sleeves under a dark red dress. She's missing one of her front teeth, and her hair is cut short to the bottom of her ears, and she has short bangs. The second photo was taken in 1969. It looks like a school portrait at the start of sixth grade. Wanda's wearing a plaid tank top, a shy smile, and a side part in her wavy brown hair. Mary, one of the detectives, had asked Joyce to accompany her and Jed, the other detective, to Wilma's house because she knew how important these unidentified human remains cold cases are to Joyce. Only once have I been able to go out and make a notification. And I did that with Wanda, her sister. It, it's heartbreaking and but joyful at the same time, um, mainly because it, 
you know, of course brings up old feelings, you know, from what you've kind of recovered from. But then it's like that source of gratitude of, you know, or, or relief that you have found the end to their story. It, it, it was it was a big deal for me um, to go and notify Wanda Hurst's sister. And also to experience kind of the end result of all this, you know. And But it is, it's kind of like, okay, now who can we identify? <laughs> On Wednesday, February 12th, 2020, the day after the trio spoke with Wilma Hur. Detective Mary Nunn reached out to Wanda's other sister, Irene Smith. She gave most of the same information that Wilma did. Irene said that her grandmother tried to find Wanda via Social Security, but was unsuccessful, and she received a notice from a bank advising that Wanda's bank account had been inactive for seven years. This is what sparked the family into having Wanda declared deceased at age 19. Irene didn't have any journals, photos, or memorabilia of Wanda. She believes Wanda was slightly shorter than her, so she estimated her to be 5'1". She thought Wanda had blue eyes, but they could have been hazel. She also thought Wanda had dark blonde hair. Irene didn't know where Wanda went to high school and didn't know if she graduated. Irene also provided a DNA sample. On October 12, 2020, 34 years after the remains were found, Mary received an email from the University of North Texas with the letter attached. The letter confirmed the DNA on file from the skull matched the familial DNA provided by Wilma Herr and Irene Smith. This definitively confirmed that the skull belonged to their long-lost sister, Wanda Ann Herr. Mary called the Clackamas County Sheriff's Office Records Unit and requested Wanda be removed as a missing person, and she updated the missing person listing in NamUs. Mary then put Irene in touch with the Clackamas County Medical Examiner to assist in having a funeral home pick up Wanda's remains and start the death certificate process. Once Wanda was identified and photos released, more tips came in, and some even said they knew Wanda. But once again, the tips haven't led anywhere. As of recording this podcast, Wanda's case is reclassified as a homicide and has been moved to the cold case unit pending additional information. Investigators believe it's highly unlikely that a 19-year-old female would have died of natural causes deep in the Mount Hood National Forest. Investigators continue to look for information on Wanda during the mid-1970s and hope to learn what led to her disappearance and death. Wanda had no DMV record, no active bank account, and there were no police reports mentioning her. She's been identified, but she's still, in some ways, unknowable. Next time on The Unidentifieds, we remain in the woods of the Mount Hood National Forest to investigate the mystery of remains found up a steep talus slope off a seldom-used trail near Multnomah Falls. It's a case that's unique among the ones we're looking at in this podcast in a couple of different ways. The Unidentifieds is a production of The Oregonian and Oregon Live. Regan Mertz reported remotely from Missouri. The podcast was edited by me, Dave Killen, alongside Andrew Thien, Teresa Mahoney, and Carly Imus. Thanks to McKenna Bach for the theme music. You can find more Oregonian podcasts at OregonLive.com podcasts. If you liked this project, give us a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Thanks for listening.